Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Lisa, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there is a chicken war taking place out there in the marketplace. Popeyes is going up against Chick-fil-A in a Twitter war over which chain has the best chicken sandwich. I wasn't aware of it until just a day or two ago, but I tell you, I know, I know. it's I'll pretty exciting. Who is aware of it? That is Mike Kalin. Mike's a senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he joins us on the phone. So, Mike, um, again, I'm not a big uh, fan of the uh, fried chicken sandwich. Tell us what's going on out there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so Popeyes uh, debuted a, uh, their version of the chicken sandwich. You know, it's it's been kind of a long time coming. I mean, they're really known for their bone-in chicken. You know, so I guess this is kind of uh, low-hanging fruit for relatively new owner restaurant brands. And uh, you know, it came out and had some spectacular reviews. And um, shortly after the the sandwich debuted, Chick Fil A uh, posted a tweet about their. Um, their chicken sandwich and Popeye's responded with y'all good. And it just sparked this massive Twitter war with, okay. you know, Wendy's jumping in the fray Mike, and Mike, before you uh, go any people further, debating which sandwich was better. Yeah. Mike, before you go any further, I mean, the idea that this is innovation is sort of amazing to me. It's, you know, it's basically this company that focuses on chicken sitting around a boardroom and saying, I have a brilliant idea. Why don't we put it between bread? I mean, what's the big deal? What is so special about these chicken sandwiches? Well, listen, for, I, I mean, chicken sandwiches have just continued to grow in popularity, right? It continues to take kind of share from, from, uh, burgers, you know, I mean, people look at it, you know, obviously fried chicken sandwiches aren't that healthy for you, but they look at it as a healthier alternative to burgers and, and people are into chicken. Right. And, um, you know, Popeye's has a lot of fanboys, you know, I mean, myself included, I absolutely love Popeye's. So I think when, <laughs> when it did come out, there was, uh, you know, I think Popeye's knew there was going to be a lot of buzz about it, right? Because like I said, this is kind of a, a long time coming. You know, I don't think they saw this level, though, of, of you know, like this, this fever pitch, obviously, right. about about the sandwich, you know? Well, it's, it, it's interesting, Mike. I saw, I've been reading, and there's been apparently a shortage of chicken sandwiches for Popeye's. They've actually run out, and as it, so what's that say about the supply chain? Like, wh where are all the chickens going? Yeah, so that's interesting. So what I'm hearing it was that it was the buns. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's chicken as well, right? Because these chicken sandwiches have to be made made to specifications by the suppliers. And you know what Popeyes is saying is, you know, we already burned through. You know, in two weeks we burned through all the supply we had pegged for um, August and September. Um, so I won't be surprised if they did run out in some stores. You know, I don't think all stores are have run out, but I think what they're trying to do is kind of uh, you know, uh, stop themselves from disappointing customers, you know? So, uh, but they have, it sounds like they have run out the supply chain. Um, you know, the supplier has to start making chickens and, and getting their hands on some buns because, you know, obviously the, the, the demand is there. I mean, also there's some speculation that they've deliberately restricted the su supply, um, to kind of create even more hype. I want to right? just so like yeah. you have a sandwich now that everybody wants, but not everybody can get. So they can kind of, um, you know, extend, 
you know, uh, the extend run. the marketing behind this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to give you a sense of, of the flip side, the, the dark underbelly of the craze. I was working like a slave. This according to one exhausted Popeye's employee uh, who is describing the harrowing experience of trying to uh, serve this incredible craze. I'm wondering if you want to take a broader kind of take on this, what this says about Twitter and the use of it in terms of marketing for some of these uh, fast food companies, because we've seen this increasingly sort of Burger King versus McDonald's or, you know, just the rivals kind of going back and forth and trying to be pithy. How much increasingly is that a mainstay of the advertising tool for some of these fast food chains? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a couple pieces to that question. But the first thing I'll address is the, the, you know, the marketing piece. I mean, listen, this is it's very low cost for you to hire, you know, a few uh, marketing interns and have them tweet on your account all day. Right. It's a lot cheaper than buying um, television, which still has an ROI on it, but or buying radio time or or putting ads in magazines. Right. So stop. Just uh, stop right there. Very, very high ROI associated with social media marketing. Um, you know, you're advertising directly where your customers are, right? Like my son doesn't watch TV anymore, but he has a, his phone in his hand all the time. He's basically walking around with a billboard in his hand, you know, so uh, this is going to continue. Um, uh, we, we think it's just going to, uh, social media marketing is just going to continue to be a, a larger percentage of the ad budgets of these companies. You know, the other thing you mentioned about the employees, um, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, there was an article out last week about a few few Popeye's employees that were talking about a horrible experience. They were so busy. They quit mid shift, you know, but, um, you know, I would caution about believing everything you read in that article. I mean, they only, you know, Popeye's has thousands of stores and there was only, inter- there was only five employees interviewed. Um, you know, I know growing up working in a car wash, uh, when the day was busy, it went a lot faster and I kind of preferred, preferred it that way. So, uh, you know, that, that there's been, a lot of hype and a lot of politicizing, uh, I guess, uh, yeah. of, of this situation, you know. Mike Halen, thank you so much for being with us. Mike Halen, senior restaurant analyst and car wash expert uh, for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. Have you had one, Paul? I have not, but now I'm my, I have to go. I mean, there, there's a line out the Chick-fil-A on Lexington Avenue every day. I know, but it's it's really just chicken on bread, right? I mean, what, what innovate? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of, my mind is boggled. People are getting older and they need health insurance and they want to get it less expensive than it is in most places. Enter eHealth, which is a company whose shares have returned uh, more than 200% over the past 12 months. Joining us right now, Scott Flanders, Chief Executive Officer of eHealth uh, from Mountain View, California. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. So just tell us a little bit about uh, the provenance of eHealth.com. Yeah, well, we started over 20 years ago helping individuals and families uh, compare insurance plans, and then we evolved to help them enroll. Uh, we're a broker, and we get paid by the health insurance companies, but we're neutral on behalf of the consumer. So we are a consumer-centric company, and our single mission is to make sure Americans have the best and right insurance for them. So, Scott, as, as, as Lisa mentioned, your stock is up over 200% over the trailing 12 months. What's really been the driver there for behind the stocks? 
No, that's great. Um, it's 100% the result of the uh, explosive growth in Medicare, private Medicare plans, better known as Medicare Advantage or Medicare Supplement plans. Uh, there are about 60 million uh, eligible Americans for Medicare right now. And of those, about 36 million have opted to buy private insurance plans, uh, many of which, millions and millions of which, can get zero premium products through Medicare Advantage. And we've been growing because we are gaining share of that growing market. So, Scott, uh, you, you basically are like a, an Expedia for health insurance plans, right? I mean, is that a fair way to sort of roughly characterize? It's perfect. It's the, no, it's the perfect description. Okay. And just as Expedia uh, carries all the airlines and has all of the flight uh, plans and prices as well as all hotels, we have all the plans and all the carriers, every doctor, every hospital, every pharmacy, and so we are able to help seniors get into the right Medicare plan. And that has real consequence for seniors. It's a, it's a stressful decision for them yeah. because, you know, they, they use a lot of health care at their age. And what we do is we're that neutral guide to get them into the right plan. And so we've been growing at six, seven times the growth of the industry because we're on the side of the consumer. Why would companies, health insurance companies, pay you if you are ultimately trying to make the premiums lower for the end consumer. Right. Well, they uh, their challenge is uh, they also uh, try to enroll seniors in their own plans, and they do a good job of that. But they can only offer the best plan for the senior that is that their company offers, whereas we offer all of the company's plans. And so the reason that they use brokers and brokers account for half of all enrollments in Medicare is because we reach into millions of seniors that they don't reach. And so they're willing to pay us. It's an offset to costs they would have anyway because it's expensive for the health insurance carriers to go out and find seniors and explain to them the benefits and get them enrolled. And so paying a broker is really an offset to a cost that the carrier would have anyway. So Scott, what, you know, as we approach the 2020 presidential election, certainly a lot of Democratic candidates are talking about changes in healthcare laws and maybe even Medicare for all. Kind of, how, do, how would that impact your business? Yeah, you know, Med Medicare for all is a great soundbite, and you know it's great for a, a political debate where you're limited to 30 seconds. You know, the, the challenge of it is what is your definition of Medicare for all? Me the reason that it's popular uh, when it's not explained is because Medicare is working and seniors are happy with it. Yeah, you know, the, the the 20 plus million Americans that are on a Medicare Advantage plan today. Our polling shows very high user satisfaction with Medicare Advantage, and it's been the Trump administration's plan and, and objective to get more seniors on Medicare Advantage plans because it's cheaper for the government, and clinical studies show it's better health care for seniors. And so seniors like it, and so, of course, it would be popular to say, let's have Medicare for all. The first thing I'd point out is seniors don't want Medicare for all. They feel like they've paid into this for their entire working lives, and they do not want the system flooded by 150 million non-seniors 
they know that would cause their benefits to be reduced. That's one big obstacle to Medicare for all and seniors vote, as we all know. The second big obstacle is we have 150 to 160 million Americans covered by employer-sponsored health care, and they don't want to give that up. And so I believe the political reality of this, as we get deeper into the cycle, uh, it'll become more clear. And you're already seeing many candidates like Kamala Harris backing off of Medicare for all, even though she had signed on to the original Bernie Sanders bill. As she's dug deeper into it, her, her view has evolved, and I think wisely so. Scott Flanders, thank you so much for joining us. Scott is a chief executive officer of eHealth. It trains on the NASDAQ under the symbol EHTH. The company is based in Mountain View, California. We appreciate Scott coming on, giving some thoughts about his company and the state of the U.S. healthcare uh, industry. Getting to be pretty predictable when we do get some sort of softening in trade talks. The place to look at is the SOX, the semiconductor index, which will inevitably pop, uh, vice versa, if you have some sort of hardening in trade tensions. That's the one that falls out of bed. Joining us now to discuss what the outlook is for some of these semiconductor shares, as well as tech in general, David Garrity, chief market strategist at Laidlaw and Company, also a partner at BT Block. Uh, he's joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. So we are seeing today uh, a pop in SOX. Stocks. Uh, Micron is uh, up 2.6%, for example. The SOX index, the Philadelphia Stock Exchange Semiconductor Index, up 2.1%. How much more could you see this index and these stocks rally if there was a protracted softening in trade discussions between the U.S. and China? Yeah, if we were to end up with a situation where we saw maybe a call for a six-month truce in terms of trade discussions pushing things out into 2020, you know, it might be possible to see you know five to a 10% rally uh, in these names. But bear in mind that a lot of what's been going on in terms of the equity markets to date have been predicated primarily upon the fact that the Federal Reserve was going to be accommodative in terms of monetary policy against any economic softening that would occur as a result of these artificially induced trade wars uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, So certainly we might say that equities to begin with anyway, including the semiconductor shares, are probably trading at elevated levels, especially when you look at a backdrop where corporate profits are already down 10% year over year from the third quarter of 2018. So, you know, clearly it's not going to be profits that are driving the stock market higher. It was either the expectation of one of two things. Either one of them is going to be monetary policy easing, which we think we saw the Federal Reserve potentially back away a bit from, at least against expectations as shown by the futures market. Or, you know, obviously we need to see a softening here with respect to uh, trade negotiations. And then clearly, you know, there's some positive noises being made here, but the question really boils down to, are you going to see enough maturity on the U.S. side to say, <laughs> okay, we're going to back down and stop beating our chest? So, again, it seems you kind of highlighted what it seems to be kind of the drivers of this market, the push and pull between uh, trade uncertainty and the Fed's ability to perhaps, you know, ameliorate some of the downside from trade uncertainty. Assuming, you know, the market is pricing in three, four, gosh, maybe five rate cuts over the next 18 months. Do you think that would be, do you think the Fed will be successful 
in continuing to drive the economy forward, even if there is this uncertainty from trade? Well, I would say that trying to overcome the uncertainty, not just from trade, but trying to overcome the uncertainty that's coming from the current administration is going to be something that the Fed's going to be able to offset. I mean, a lot of what has been coming out in terms of, if we can call it policy volatility, from the administration clearly has made it very, very difficult for anybody running a business to plan over you know, a, a, a two to a five year horizon for fear of the fact that you know, someone could turn right around in 24 hours and say something completely opposite of what had been said before. Difficult to plan in an uncertain environment. And unless the administration were able to move to a stance where they could give consistent, stable, policy views that people could actually plan around, most likely you're going to find that people who are going to be committing capital, not just to the stock market, but to the real economy here, are going to say, look, we'll just take a go-slow approach until we've got somebody more stable that we can deal with. Which tech company, big tech, do you think has most immunized itself from some of the push-pull that we're seeing in the trade talks? I mean, the view around technology is um, you know, certainly if we look at the ongoing strength that there is around online search, I mean, Google still remains a fairly strong factor. Google on their own had pulled out from China. Now, granted, there have been you know issues where Google has been seen doing some development work, potentially in collaboration with China. But I would argue that on balance, it's a fairly small part of their overall business. Uh, you might also say that at the same time, Amazon. Uh, you know, it certainly has some uh, strength in terms of just being able to displace retail. Granted, this is all happening against a consumer environment where the impact of tariffs could have a major effect on holiday shopping in 2019. This is not necessarily something from which Amazon would be immune, but one would argue if you look at other participants in the retail channel, probably Amazon is still in a position to gain greater share uh, against that. So one might argue that if you want to get away from semiconductors, where clearly they're directly exposed relative to trade negotiations, Apple to some extent, also the impact that it's had on the iPhone in the overseas markets. But looking in terms of some of the tech names, um, Google, Amazon would be some major names that we would look at as being somewhat insulated. You know, staying with tech stocks, one of the risks that seems to have faded a little bit is the regula the regulation risk for tech. I mean, you know, it, it seems like it's been a you know, a lifetime ago when the, we had the tech CEOs in front of Congress and so on and so forth. How much of a risk do you think that is an overhang for technology stocks. I'm looking at just the, the NASDAQ's down 2% from on a trailing 12-month basis. How much regulatory risk is still out there for the tech sector? I would say the regulatory risk continues to be a concern. I mean, we obviously have a situa situation right now where Congress is adjourned, but obviously wait until September and hearings are reconvened. Also, in the meanwhile, it's been interesting to see that tech companies such as Facebook in the area of digital currencies, Facebook, as we know, had come out back in June of 2019, discussed their effort at developing a digital currency, Libra. Um, there was universal pushback yep. from regulators in this regard, but there are indications now that Facebook is still planning on pushing forward to have an early 2020 launch. So, you know, the fact that a company like Facebook would essentially act uh, against regulators in this case, not work collaboratively with them, I would think just argues for further attention to be paid to this area. Uh, so further attention, just to follow up on the Libra, have we determined that it actually is a cryptocurrency at this point? 
it, it probably is whatever Mark Zuckerberg says it is. Um, but we would argue that uh, I would much ra- in terms of companies developing digital currencies, I'd much rather look at what JP Morgan is doing with the JPM coin and, and the fact of seeing that actually developed and deployed uh, than, than putting any great expectations on my part with respect to what Facebook and Libra may do. So talk to us about that JPM coin. What is that? Uh, it, it essentially, it was announced back in uh, February uh, of 2019. The initial intention was this was a way of trying to put in place a, a blockchain platform um, with a settlement token, the JPM okay. coin, that would be used to speed transfers, reduce costs of being able to move money. First, it was targeted mostly in terms of other interbank transactions. But over time, as it started to expand, it has the potential of going out to more enterprise or corporate clients, not just of JP Morgan Chase, right. but also its network of um, correspondent banks worldwide. Interesting. David Garrity, thanks so much for joining us. David's a chief market strategist at Laylawed Company, also a partner at BT Block, joining us uh, as he's wont to do in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate your thoughts on the market and on technology. And- and on cryptocurrencies. Well, last night, China indicated that it would not immediately retaliate against the latest U.S. tariff increases announced by President Trump last week, emphasizing the need to discuss ways to de-escalate the trade war between the world's two largest economies. To get the latest on the U.S.-China trade discussions, we go to Christopher Balding, associate professor at Fulbright University in Vietnam. He's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Usually uh, he's based in Saigon, but today he is in Los Angeles, California. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. So what do you make uh, of the move by China last night to say, hey, let's maybe de-escalate this a little bit? I, I wouldn't read too much into it. Uh, at the same time yesterday, for instance, they were uh, criticizing the U.S. for freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea. They were also calling for uh, um, an ending of the embargo against Huawei. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I, I, I'd be a little cautious reading too much into that one particular statement. So I want to read you something that Jim Bianco of Bianco Research said in an interview with the market NZZ. It's a, a German uh, newspaper, he was talking about President Trump's tactics uh, in the trade war, and he referenced Spinal Tap, the sort of cult film from the 1980s, saying, I think Trump is going to 11 on trade. He's going to turn it up so high that there is going to have to be a deal. That's the way he wants to do this. He will just make it intolerable so everybody has to sit down and cut a deal. Do you agree? I, I think there's some truth to that with, with, uh, with a caveat. And what I mean by that is, is if, you, if you actually go back and look over the past 18 months, um, there has been some back and forth and there has been some stops and starts. But in reality, the trend line has been slow and steady escalation for the past 18 months, which is where we're at today. Um, so if we strip the rhetoric out, um, it's actually been pretty, pretty steady. Um, however, I think what, what's always important to remember is that um, domestically, China has a lot more more uh, control over its economy, especially with the credit flows um, and how they're working to keep the economy going. Um, so I think their, their threshold for pain is quite high. And so they seem intent on essentially making Trump uh, bring the pain, for lack of a better term. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see who blinks first in, in how much pain each side is willing to sustain. So on that front, um, you know, it appears that, you know, President Trump and the administration are 
prepared to take the long road here. There really hasn't been any indication that they are not. So is your expectation that uh, these these trade discussions or impasse, if you will, uh, we kind of go beyond the 2020 election? I'm kind of I'm kind of looking at 2020 as is the real uh, the election in 2020 is the real indicator um, about what's going to happen because it's very you know even though China might release an overnight statement I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence that there's going to be any type of significant movement uh, any anytime soon and so I think you really have to expect that Beijing is really hoping for uh, for a much more compliant uh, president that is willing to make a deal than President Trump. So I guess I'm looking right now at market reaction, which is that people buy it. I mean, right now, and I was thinking perhaps you're seeing a rally on this sort of de-escalation or apparent de-escalation by China. Uh, perhaps it's on light volume, but no, we learned it's actually on, on more value, volume uh, in terms of stock trading than we've seen in recent weeks. And I'm just wondering, do you think that traders are wrong, that they just keep getting fooled again and again, that there's some sort of progress when it is just sort of a steady escalation and that's what it's going to be until 2020? Um, I do think it's going to be a much more steady escalation, and um, it, it is a little surprising to me that every time there is this, you know, um, overnight negative comment or uh, a, a Trump tweet, that the market jumps in reaction. And it would seem by now that the algorithms could figure out that uh, to essentially moderate their expectation of a specific statement or tweet. So, Chris, I know you have a lot of expense, uh, experience in uh, in the Asian uh, region. Give us your sense of kind of the pressure that President Xi is under to get not only a deal, but the right deal. Well, I think uh, the, the big issue for him economically is if he were to actually uh, make significant material concessions on economic policy, um, there's two specific issues. First of all, he's built himself up as the rejuvenator of China, you know, making China great again. And so that would be politically suicidal for him to, to really back down to Trump. The other thing is, is that if he was to really open up Chinese markets to competition and reduce subsidies to heavy industry and things like that. Um, there are very serious questions about the stability that that would bring or, or the volatility that would bring to unemployment, uh, to a lot of industries, um, potential bank failures, things like that. So it's questionable even economically if he can do that without uh, being willing to bear significant amount of pain in the Chinese economy. There was a story today on the Bloomberg looking at how most U.S. companies are planning to stay in China and simply ride out any unrest uh, with respect to trade negotiations. And you have seen certain banks expand their operations overseas. And I'm wondering, you know, whether they're right in, in betting that China won't retaliate against them as part of their effort against the U.S. when they run out of uh, goods to tariff. Well, I think uh, it, it is a very serious question, and we've seen this with the Canadians, we've seen this with Brits, um, we've seen this with Australians, that uh, China has no qualms about using either business operations or uh, foreign personnel as bargaining chips. Uh, and this is dating back many years. This is not just trade war related. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's a significant risk that those companies are absorbing, des deciding to stay in there and say China's not going to retaliate against us because they clearly ha have a long-term pattern of doing so. So Chris, there seems to be bipartisan support in the U.S. for a meaningful trade deal with China. Is the same thing true in China? 
Well, the rumors that you hear, and I think there's, there's solid evidence to back this up, is that there's a lot of in, there's a not insignificant amount of infighting within China about what is, uh, how is best to proceed. Um, it's not lost on even, you know, let's say party supporters that China is becoming increasingly closed off from the global economy. Um, whether it's being able to vacation, uh, abroad as they put currency limits, uh, on people, um, or whether it's invest abroad, all, um, access to information overseas. It's not lost on anyone, even the party supporters, what is happening. So I think there is a a not insignificant amount of infighting even within China. Christopher Balding, thank you so much for spending time with us. Christopher Balding is associate professor at Fulbright University of Vietnam. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.